hamster with a blunt penknife and do it quicker. Welcome back to uh, Hamster with a Blunt Penknife, the Doctor Who commentary podcast. I am having a f- delightful evening with Gary Russell here tonight, talking about, well, not talking about the rights. <laughs> <laughs> We're very bad, aren't we? We should be talking about this lovely story. <laughs> it is lovely, and we will have lots to say. Um, how are you doing tonight, Gary? I'm fine. I'm sorry. I, can I just say, looking at this shot at the start of episode three, your comment last time about Deep Space Nine, I just can't stop seeing this as being set on board Deep Space Nine now with the circular doors. Um, that's just really annoying me. Um, sorry, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm having a lovely, lovely evening. Oh, that, well, that's very, very good to hear. Um, something occurs at the beginning of this episode, uh, which happens quite a lot in 60s Doctor Who, and that is one of the regulars goes on holiday. Yes. And so... I'm going to hit, hit you with this question immediately. Does this story suffer for leaving Barbara on the ship? Well, it suffers for leaving Barbara on the ship because she's so interesting. Um, but somebody had to stay on the ship with Captain Maitland, uh, who is also just abstractly written out. Um, and I suppose, it ha- yeah, if it's going to be anyone, it probably is Barbara because... You don't watch the rest of the centrites and go, what this story needed at this point was Barbara, because Susan is important when she's on the planet and Ian's important on the planet because he's the muscle man. Um, So, yeah, uh, it kind of makes sense that if anyone's going to be left behind in this particular story, Barbara is is easily the sacrificial lamb. They should have thrown um, a line, shouldn't they, about her tan, that she's been sunning herself on the ship or something like that. She's <laughs> great when she comes back. Yes. What do you think then is the most, um, what do you think is like the worst example of this, a regular departing for an episode? Because it happens oh, a fair bit, doesn't it? In all honesty, the worst one of all is William Hartnell in episode three of 10th Planet, oh. uh, where he's he in the middle of something and goes, oh, I'm feeling faint and collapses <laughs> and, and suddenly turns into Brian Proudfoot and he's escorted out. And it's like, what? where did that come from? You, you literally just decided to have a holiday so they had to have you faint for no readily apparent reason. Um, it's not like there'd been any build-up to it. If it happened in episode one and two, we'd be going, oh, I don't feel very well. Oh, I'm going to regenerate soon. Uh, that would have been fine. But it's just at that point, he just collapses for no good reason and he's written out the story. Um, that's the only time I think you ever look at it and go, that's, that's really a bit icky. The rest of them, like Kiza Marinus, everyone seems to be written out at some point. And uh, I love the fact in Toymaker, Grant was given a holiday by becoming invisible. Uh, oh, you can do all your lines at Ealing Studios in, in three days, Bill, for this entire story. Oh, that's marvellous. Oh, I'll have a holiday then. They get, um, but Tenth Planet doesn't work for losing him. Putting in film inserts. So, you, you know, like there's just a, like Susan in the Attic, things like that. I always think it's when it's the Doctor, because I'm the same with the Seeds of Death. Um, when the seed pod explodes in his face and then, you know, it's another actor in the corner of the studio and they, every now and again they go over and say, is he awake yet? No, he's not. Okay, he'll be awake in the next episode. Don't worry. That, that <laughs> is a little bit obvious. But generally speaking, yeah. they do it pretty I, I guess when you're doing 52 episodes or 42 episodes a year, you know, one, one week off is actually not too bad when you consider that, you know, we all get four weeks off. Well, those of us Six. that have real jobs freelancers <laughs> of like me get no time off but you know people have four weeks a year holiday or something 
well, these poor bastards weren't getting in four weeks a year holiday at all. Because even when the show had finished, they were learning the lines for the next session or getting more jobs or whatever. You know, it's a hard life being an actor in the 60s on a show like Doctor Who that is so utterly demanding. Even as um, like amiable as Troughton, he got really exhausted by the end, didn't he? And and a bit snappy. Yes, I I don't blame them. I mean, I know actors that do six episodes of something a year and they get <laughs> irritable and snappy. Um, you know, it's if people think acting is a an easy thing, you just turn up, stand in front of the camera, say some lines, and that's your job done. That the it's actually one of the most stressful jobs out there. Um, but you know what, you make a fabulous point there about, like, Doctor Who was on how many weeks of the year? Yeah, I think it was 42 oh, back then. We can only dream, can't we? <laughs> I know, I know, but at the same time, you have to balance that and go, yes, okay, so we only get 8 or 10 or 12 these days, but I think the quality of production that we have now, mm. you wouldn't get if we were doing 42 of them, they'd look like this they'd look like something really archaic and falling apart and you know you even soaps have probably got a higher budget than doctor who um and at least they don't have to have the same character in every single episode i wouldn't want to play doctor who now if someone said i wouldn't want to play doctor who at all but i wouldn't want to be doctor who if someone said oh you're gonna do 42 of these a year jody so <laughs> no you'd have a series of sort of one one year doctors we'd get through the next 20 regenerations very very quickly because it's punishing and you know when you're leading a show as, as the doctor and the companion are that on top of actually making the show you know these days compared sorry those days in the 60s really and truly maybe opening a fate once in a blue moon was was you know fine for william hartnell or something but you compare that to what what david and matt and Aldi, Peter the and world had really. to do yeah you know they're, they're not making doctor who but they're playing doctor who for the other 50 weeks a year because it doesn't leave them alone that's the modern world we live in in these days people were far more polite to actors and say oh lord there's a famous person over there oh i won't go up and ask for an autograph now jody walks down the street you know and she's besieged by people um and and you know we live in a world where in those days if someone saw william hartnell oh, excuse me mr hartnell oh you're brilliant i love doctor who can i have your autograph well i think a lot of people would probably go up to jody or mandip or anyone like that and as many people go, you're brilliant and I love you, as many people will say, oh, you're shit. Yeah. Which is a horrible thing to do to an actor. Oh, yeah. And I, I've never understood why people think it's fair game, whether it's in person or online, to just be rude and abusive to actors. It's just beyond me. Who, who do people think they are to behave like that? But, you know, that's, more, that's particularly the curse, I think, of social media to some extent. And these very oh, strong that, <laughs> that take ownership of the show, you know? Yeah. Well, I guess that's what happens. It's like Star Trek and Star Wars, isn't it? The fans always think they own something because it's been around for their entire lives. So they think, well, we know more about it than the people making it. They are inevitably wrong. I mean, that, that oh, yeah, we're going off topic again, but I'm going to do it. Um, <laughs> that kind of started kind of mid to late 70s didn't it the doctor appreciation society coming along and then i think fans were given a lot weren't they in sort of jnt's time yeah i think i think it, i think i think philip hinchef and graham williams kept everyone at arm's length very sensibly i always remember robert holmes famously saying in an interview he didn't approve of a doctor appreciation society because he didn't think that he, 
it, it leads to madness and he wasn't wrong. JNT was determined to be a lot more open and a lot more accessible to people because he thought that's what the show needed at that point because it had been running for so long and he wanted everyone to know that it was in good hands and that eventually blows up in your face because suddenly people go oh now you've made yourself accessible it means we can be a complete shit to you yeah um nobody would have dreamt of going up to graham williams or philip hinchcliffe or barry letts and going oh you're shit everyone thought oh jnt's fair game because by being open to people you open yourself to that target and unfortunately with when jnt did that that kind of opened the floodgates and then every other person who ever came after him had to put up with the same kind of thing now we've got to a point where you know we've given everybody the facility to have their voice heard yeah and that way madness lies well also and and it also uh is is an echo chamber that is artificial because doctor who fans we all sit there and we we say what we say on twitter or facebook or insta or whatever and we think we're actually being listened to and we're influential and actually you know doctor who that sea devils thing got three point something million or i know something from last season got four or five million or whatever doctor who fans around the world probably account for about 25 to thirty thousand people we are a tiny 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 drop in the ocean to the audience of doctor who um and we we forget that and we think we're important we think we're the voice we think it's outrageous that the people making the show don't listen to what we have to say and actually we're so desperately unimportant for two reasons one we're a very small percentage of the overall audience and two we're doctor who fans we're going to watch it anyway yeah so no matter we, how much we, what we say every time a showrunner or an actor or anyone says oh fans are brilliant we're all for and i'm sure they mean it but at the same time it's actually irrelevant because we're going to watch it regardless and even if we don't watch it like i didn't for two episodes of creature from the pit we come back eventually when someone waves a shiny mandrel in front of us um so you know no, no one's going to disappear forever that the numbers are important at all anymore like for some reason they've got this obsession with the the ratings but i you know the nature of television has changed so much now that i think i think i think we're the only fandom that worries about ratings i don't see star trek fans and there's plenty of star trek fans going well i don't like discovery or i don't like picard because they're mad um <laughs> but nobody runs up and down and says oh my god Picard only got 1.6 million people last week watching it you know it's just like doctor who fans we're obsessed with ratings and they have zero impact on the show it it's utterly irrelevant because it's public service broadcasting and yet they think they know better well anyway. it's not a they it's an us it, you know we're all guilty of it oh for sure um, for sure and and uh yeah but we don't know better uh, but we kid ourselves that we do and we kid ourselves that what we say matters and and it really doesn't but it nevertheless it's still good fun to, you know, think that we do. Because that's why we're fans and we love this show and we're passionate about it and we want to protect it and we, we want to sort of, we don't really want to do it down. It sort of turns into a bit of doing it down, I guess. But really, even the ratings thing is kind of, we just desperately want it to be popular and, and yeah. I think it I goes think back to something deep in our psyche where we kind of go, we want to be popular. I think Doctor Who fans 
have probably grown up in a in a life where they might not or they might feel that they were never the most popular person at school or they've never been the most popular person in situation a b or c and and that reflects itself into the viewing figures where we become obsessed with viewing figures because we want doctor who to be popular and successful because it validates us as human beings who perhaps weren't as successful and popular at a point in our lives when we needed to be that would be my guess as to why we're obsessive ratings because really they don't matter well i'll tell you something that's oh, the rights. <laughs> <laughs> never mind the sensor rights oh god no opinion can be worse than another he, he just said hmm he's obviously listening to me you seem to sense rights wearing different costumes and it's the only way that he actually talking about how they recognise each other through their bloody costumes. Gary, you seem to have pressed play on this episode. I haven't. Oh, have you not? No. <laughs> down. I pressed play. What? I just, I left. Don't worry, I'll tell you what. Let's just, let's just keep going to the end of this one. Yeah, all right. I'll just, I'll just tell you what's going on. So the centrites are having hot rampant sex in the corner of a room. Oh, amazing. And Barbarella's just floated in and the Enterprise is shooting lasers down and blowing the planet up. That oh, no, wait, that's not like story, my kind of TV. You know? <laughs> <laughs> what is going on then? Well, what is going on is that, is that two sensorites are currently having a discussion with each other. Mm. Um, one's called the First Elder and one's called something else entirely. And one suspicious act and the disintegrator will destroy them, he's just said. And they're just basically talking to each other in rubber masks with, with floppy beards. Um, and yet they're strangely compelling. Because those masks, unlike so many Doctor Who masks, which are usually half masks or or latex attached to the face or whatever, the sensorite masks are completely all-encompassing. So the poor actor underneath has no, he can't emote, he can't use his eyes, he can't smile. The, the face is, is completely obscured, which is quite unusual for a Doctor Who monster. You thought we would have learned our lesson come like the Terraleptils, but poor Michael Melia. I mean, I know there was a little bit of animatronics going on there, but he was in the same situation, wasn't he? Uh, you know, I think Doctor Who monsters over the years, even if you give them a half mask or something, you're still enormously restricted. I mean, look at the people inside Cyberman costumes. You know, you just... if you had claustrophobia, I don't think you'd want to play a Cyberman. All I know is I've seen some uh, production pictures of the the men that are inside the 80s side men, and they certainly piqued my interest. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> it's the big panda eyes and the sweat, isn't it? Oh, man, does it for me. Um, okay, so I've got a question for you about something that occurred at the beginning of this episode. Yep. Um, how do you feel about Susan's teenage rebellion? Is this supposed to be a progression towards the Dalek invasion and her being old enough for the Doctor? to think that he can or must abandon her? No, I don't think they remotely thought along those lines back in the 60s. I think they went week by week. At this point, they wouldn't have known Caroline Ford was planning to leave or anything like that. No, no I think it was just probably Peter Newman in conversations with Dave Whitaker said, you know, oh, I think it'd be quite nice if, if she's get a bit rebellious and and because she's got a telepathy here and she's feeling a bit more grown up and, and a bit fed up with being bossed around. And Whitaker probably went, yeah, that's a really good point. We'll do that in this story. That This will be the story where she has the teenage rebellion because, you know, there's no sign of it in Reign of Terror or Planet of Giants. Um, so I don't think, I think we as fans again, He's got enormous nipples, that. 
Hey, I'm showing through his costume in a really unflattering <laughs> God damn it, um, why can't I see this? <laughs> no, believe me, it's not good. It's okay. not something you want to see. Um, I, we, we as fans look back on sort of 60s and 70s pre-JNT era, I would say, and even some of the JNT stuff, but certainly pre-JNT, all Doctor Who, and we, we, we try and rationalise and go, oh, this is a character progression, or this is a story progression, and this is a conscious effort to do this, this, and this. Absolutely never was. It was story of the week, and, you know, it had to be entertaining for 25 minutes or four lots of 25 minutes, and then you move on to the next thing. They didn't worry about things like that. That's what we're here to do. We're here to worry about it. So to retrospectively go back to a 1960s story and go, oh, were they planning, were they setting this up because of how Susan eventually left? No, they had no idea how Susan was going to leave at the point when they made the sense rights. But it's fantastic that by accident, we can look at these things and see these strands and put them together and go, ah, oh, that's clever. But the chances are 99% of the things we think are clever are a total accident. Rob Shearman and Toby Haydock uh, have a series of um, critiques uh, running through corridors. I don't know if you've read those. I, I, I'm aware of them, yes. Absolutely brilliant. Uh, but they're doing what you said there. They, they go through the 60s, they go through the 70s, and they're making connections and they're giving really intelligent readings on these stories that you know, were like guerrilla television being made up on the fly. And it's really interesting to look at it that way, but I think you're right. It, a lot of it's just improvised and... It's improvised and it's just luck. There's a wonderful bit, you know, in um, a Terence Dix commentary where somebody asks him, you know, uh, I think it was Toby Haddock that asked him, you know, you, you built this fabulous um, Earth empire in, you know, you had the decline of the Earth Empire in one story, you had the beginning of the Earth Empire in another story, and the Earth Empire at its height in another story, you know, was this a conscious effort to tell, you know, the timeline of Earth in the future? And Terrence Dix just shoots him down and goes, no, we just didn't want to show the test card, you know, by 13 years. <laughs> absolutely true. I can just imagine Terrence, oh, you know, we didn't want to do that. Why, why would we do that? <laughs> It's, it's, it's a story of the week with stories. It's all about stories. You know, he sums it up. He just goes, fans. <laughs> <laughs> and he's not wrong. <gasps> oh, he's great. He is really great. Oh, oh, William Russell's just looked at the camera. Something must have gone wrong. And he looked at the camera as if to go, we're, we're, we're going to do another take on. The, oh, we're not doing another take on this. We're carrying on. Um, bless him. This is unique for me, you know, doing a commentary through somebody else's eyes. Something you're not watching. Yeah. <laughs> the um, sound effects aren't even the same height as each other. They all have a very interesting thing. When they stand, they do a sort of slightly weird uh, meerkatty thing with their hands sort of ho hovering, hanging just above their belts, as if that's sort of some weird... And they, they all do it, this kind of weird natural standing pose. Apart from the guy with the black slash who, who, sash, who is um, slightly more rotund than any oh, of the other sensorites. Special um, movement by Rosalind de Winter, perhaps? Oh, no, she's not around yet, is she? She's not around at this point. <laughs> oh, and he's just bashed his prop into the door. Um, bless him. I like their, their, their very nice Perspex tables here um, that, that are really kind of 60s and, and funky. I think they probably came from Mariners by the look of it. Um, there's some very good architecture in this story. The design, yeah, yeah, yeah. Doctor yeah. Who's design, I think, is always very good. You, you get someone like like um, Ray Cusick, 
Huth goes, how tall are the aliens on this planet? I'll make the sets fit them. I don't know who the set designer is on, on Sensorites, but the fact that it is, again, much like on that spaceship, it's just a series of curves and, and circles and things like that. But it really suits. It's an alien architecture. There's lots of things going up in one direction and then another curve is coming down behind them. So they're, they're quite intricate and wrapped around each other in a way that you don't see in human architecture and it's really nice and alien it says this is an alien planet and an alien society which we haven't really done properly in Doctor Who up to this point the Daleks did it quite nicely inside their Dalek city but it was that was the same thing repeated all the way through um, and I love the fact that in Daleks everyone has to crouch down to get through the doors because they're only made to be tall enough for a Dalek but here this is an actual genuinely well constructed well thought out uh, alien architecture. Those early 60s stories that you don't really get again. And I think it would be very easy to point and mock at it is those perspective backcloths that they use in stories like the Aztecs and things like that. And it's you talked about vid firing earlier. And I think sometimes with the vid firing, it has a detrimental effect on how things look visually like in the mind robber when they click well, when they cleaned out for the dvd you could see that cyclorama whereas when we had the old v you know uh, fuzzy vhs it looked like a an amazing sort of white space except uh, of course that isn't how they saw it in the 60s they <laughs> saw it as we're seeing it with vidfire so oh, it's not like we've we've made something that was bad look good all the vidfire has done is returned it to how it would have looked on transmission because those crappy old film prints we had for the VHSs are made two years after the episode went out with someone sticking a camera in it so they could sell it abroad and making it on show, videoing it on film, missing part of the picture and everything. Vidfire brings it back to exactly how it would have looked on our screens in 1963. Mind you, I'm almost willing to bet, and you can cut me down here, that you've had some of those, you know, uh, seventh or eighth generation VHSs in your time i lived on them in the early 80s where they're getting sent over from australia i remember certain th pictures that roll all the time there were things we couldn't watch because it's like this is a color story and it's in black and white and the picture's fuzzy and oh and at the same time going but it's doctor it's who and i haven't doctor seen who. it <laughs> yeah. and that was certainly true of the black and white stuff god we had really ropey copies of things like seeds of doom and the war games uh, you see, you take a story like The War Games, for years, people have always gone, oh, The War Games not very good, oh, it's a bit long, oh, it's a bit tedious. And I think it's because they watched it on these fuzzy old eighth generation copies. And when it came out on DVD, all shiny and beautiful and lovely and as it should be seen, everyone kind of went, bloody hell, The War Games is magnificent. Mm. Was, I'll tell you what story had that effect with me was Seeds of Death. I had that old um, truncated VHS version of Seeds of Death. And then when that came out on DVD later, I was I was astonished at uh, the quality of that story. Right. Now, whatever you just said, um, I lost you. Oh, OK. Well, I'll, you, I'll, I'll you say it again. again. You've got as far as going, I'll tell you which story. And then <laughs> like, okay. We, OK, this happens every now and again. It's Zoom. People are forgiving. Um, Seeds of Death. That truncated yes. version of Seeds of Death that i really struggled with when that came out on dvd cleaned up in six episodes that's exactly what you're talking about there i fell yeah. in love with it yeah absolutely i love Caesar death Caesar death is is the first story for me where i became a fan of doctor who where i cared about it it was ice warriors they were back 
it was an exciting story on the moon. Um, and I remember that probably the first time I went to school and talked to people about Doctor Who and, and imitated Ice Warriors and everything like that. I think that is the exact point where I went from somebody who watched Doctor Who to somebody who lived and breathed Doctor Who. And then when Pertwee came along, I was like, <gasps> I am, I'm, a, I'm in awe of the gods. Um, you'll be very pleased to know that episode three of The Censorites <laughs> uh, in some depth. Uh, has now finished and, and other than talking about nipples and uh, people walking into sets and looking at cameras uh we kind of kind of screwed that one up really didn't we <laughs> look we got half the story as to go right there's plenty of time that's true that's true um, maybe, maybe at some me? point we will sit down and talk about it <laughs> can you remind me what the cliffhanger was to episode three no because i was talking to you and watching oh. your face face when it happened ian um, ian was poisoned wasn't he Probably. I think that's the end of episode three. I can't remember. <laughs> well, folks. I'm rubbish at this. Joe, I'm utter rubbish at this. I, I, I'm not even watching the television. I'm talking to you. And this is very, very, very bad of me. I do apologise. I disagree entirely. I think you're very, very good at this. And we'll be very good for three more episodes. <laughs>